Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So today we're talking about problem people. And there is a difference. There's a difference between problem people and people with problems. So you can probably take a sigh of relief right now and say, oh good, this may or may not be about me. Some people have problems. Some people are problems. And I have a funny feeling you know the difference. My good friend Bob Combs always used to like to say that hurting people hurt people. And there's an awful lot of truth to that. In my neighborhood growing up, uh, that's a long story, but anyhow, uh, Facebook has a group of the people from my neighborhood that are part of it. There's about 50,000 of us that are on this Facebook group of our closest friends. And um, one of them, who I don't really know personally, but grew up in my era, and he had a thing on that was the top 10 ways to know that somebody's from Philly. And um, I thought they were pretty good, but I really, really liked number five. The number five way that people know you're from Philly is, he said, when you go to a restaurant in New York City and you order your meal and you ask for a glass of water and they mock the way you say water, and so you punch them in the face because they expect that you're from Philly. So I loved it. That was really, really good. Um, so here's a question for you to think deeply about. Did you come today because you are a problem people and you wanted to see what we were saying about you? I hope not. Do you know people who are problem people? Be careful. Uh, you know, we have to be a little bit considerate when you think about who they are. We are in Titus chapter 3, and Pastor Clark left out. I didn't give him these tough verses to deal with. Um, <clears throat> verses 9, 10, and 11 that really do talk about people that are a real, real problem. And just to give a little bit of background on that, uh, Pastor Clark talked last week, and in verse 3, the Apostle Paul said something to Titus about these kinds of people, and he said this, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. At one time, we were all like the people that he's about to, to describe, to some degree or other. And I wonder if maybe he gave us some of the good stuff in verses 1 through 8 to remind us this is how we're supposed to be. But then there are some exceptions to the rule. And they, uh, and they come about, and he mentions them in verses 9, 10, and 11. So we're going to think about how do you handle problem people. I'll read those verses. They're really pretty easy. You don't really need me to speak about them, but they're, uh, it's fun to talk about. It says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. 
because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Wow, this is pretty, pretty heady stuff. So I, I really work hard sometimes to find a scripture passage to read on Sunday morning uh, prior to the offering. And uh, this one was really, really tough to come up with because you wanted to say something that was uh, appropriate to the text that we're looking at, but also something that's encouraging. I and mean, this is all about problems and problem people. That's hard to do. But I did find the Romans passage that Mark did a great job with, and especially at the end when it reminds you that Paul just says, man, I just hope God's grace is with you all the time. So how do we handle people who are problem people? First nine just starts off and says, avoid them. The word that's there for avoid is the word that some cultures would use as shun them, or disfellowship them, or excommunicate them. It means literally to turn oneself around and to purposely turn away from something or someone. It's as if like you were walking up to them and there they were in front of you and you quickly turned around and went the other direction. That's what it's telling us to do with these kind of people. Basically, get away from them. Put in your bulletin outline for you a little study that you can do on your own a little bit later if you want to. It's kind of an interesting one. It's just a couple places where it talks about the effects of false <coughs> teachers in the body of Christ and what they can do to you if you allow them to have an audience. The first one that I have in here is Acts chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 24, which will probably look at that passage a little bit later, or at least I'll refer to it again. But if you understand what's going on there, that's the very first major Christian church controversy that ever happens. It was a bunch of, Paul was out there leading people to Christ and a bunch of Gentiles were getting saved and the Messianic Christians, the Jewish Christians, were saying, well, that's wonderful, that's really great, but they still gotta do all the stuff we had to do. They've got to observe all the feasts, all seven of the feasts in the Old Testament. They've gotta be circumcised. They gotta do all the stuff that, that we had to do to be really good Jews. And a big debate took place. A church conference happened in Jerusalem and all the heavy hitters were there and they have a big discussion over what is required for someone to be saved and, and accepted by God. And um, it's really, really good. We'll refer back to it a little bit later. But in this verse 24, um, James, who the half-brother of Jesus, who at the end stands up and kind of brings the whole conference to an end by saying, so here's what I think the conclusion is of all the debate we've been having, all this discussion back and forth. They need to be like the Jews. They don't need to be like the Jews. All What is God required? He gets up and at the end, says, you know what, the, this kind of teaching has been upsetting to the mind of the believers. That's what verse 24 says. Paul in other places tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, it'll shipwreck your faith if you're not careful. It will lead to blasphemy 
if you're not careful. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells them this could ruin those who pay attention to it and get confused by some of the false teaching. It could lead to ungodliness and it could spread like gangrene in the body of Christ. So these are really serious issues. When people come into mind and they cause divisiveness, it can really destroy a body of Christ and individuals very, very strongly. So in that verse nine, Paul tells Titus that there's at least four types of errors, or if you're from inner city Phillies, they're errors. And, um, and so these are the things to watch out for uh, in, in the body of Christ. There's four of them. Number one is the controversies. That's interesting. And in my translation here, the New International, says avoid foolish controversies. The word foolish is the Greek word, Greek word morose, which we use in our language as moron. Uh, these are really stu stupid, moronic controversies. And the con word controversies is kind of interesting. Its basic meaning has to do with searching and investigating something. That's good. And it also leads to like discussions and debates, and that can be good. But it seems like the way Paul uses it almost always when he uses this word, it's about things that are especially controversial and contentious by nature. So this is something that is a moronic teaching that is pretty contentious by the way that is being presented. It's always presented by Paul in a negative note. Do we have things like that today? Well, we can go outside the church and talk about politics. <laughs> um, now remember the etymology of politics is there's poly means many ticks. So politics. Um, in, in our culture, it seems like Maybe it's just the old age of me, or maybe it's just the availability of information, but it just seems like anything political gets more and more and more negative and divisive and controversial as time goes on. And it seems like the higher the office uh, that's being contended for, the worse that that gets. But I think you knew all that. What about the church? The, uh, the church in the United States, the larger picture of that is interesting because there's a lot of fights that go on in those churches over things like, is what is the word of God? Is it really inspired? Is it, you know, did God really communicate to us? Or what about the area of women pastors or um, homosexual pastors? That's the big picture, the bigger church that includes everybody, all the flavors. Uh, not so much in our world, we don't fight over that. We, we've settled about the Word of God is the Word of God, and we're okay with that, and we try to live by that. But even in Bible-type churches, there are issues that sometimes can be controversial. Things like music style, or some of the practices of the church. How do you do this, or how do you do that? And, uh, or even things like the version of the Bible. What, what translation is, is one that you should use? Some churches really argue over that. And basically, we live in a culture now that really 
loves to be argumentative. We just love to have a good argument with somebody. And it really feels like there's a lot of times in our culture where people are looking for who's to blame. Uh, they want to know what's right and what's wrong. And of course, they always want to be right. And they always want to find out who is it that we can blame for this. Now, some of those discussions that I brought up, inspiration, music styles, leadership things, all of that can be really, really good discussions if it's intended for learning to take place. It can be valuable to talk to people and say, oh, I never saw it that way, and, I, and that's interesting. I like hearing that viewpoint. But not if it's just for the sake of arguing. Back in the culture that Christ walked around in and Paul ministered in, the Greeks were very, very intelligent people, um, very philosophical, and they loved to argue. They loved to argue. They loved to have debates, and some of them would be uh, traveling shows that would go around and just um, present logical things and debate on it and talk about it. And uh, I think the Greeks were the ones who invented circular reasoning. I'm not sure on that. It's interesting as I was studying these verses and I looked at my different commentaries that I had and I looked at several. There's a, a three word phrase that came up a lot, I mean, repeatedly by the commentaries, and I think it's a really good one to keep in mind. It was a phrase that said, waste of time. <laughs> uh, these things can be a waste of time. Human reasoning can be a waste of time. If all we're doing is trying to figure out human opinions and human thoughts, uh, when we could easily go to God's word and find it. False teachers distort and they contradict the scriptures. Um, they have these new, profound, novel, brilliant ideas and insights that they want to bring to you. And they just want you to know them. I remember one time, I was a long, long time ago, I was speaking and I apparently somehow made it, talked about how God and eternity passed that you know made these decisions that he was going to create the world and all this kind of stuff and someone approached me afterwards and said when you talked about that and he said i never heard of an eternity past before and it's like well you know it's just whatever was there before we were and before the world was and he kind of thought about it and he said but then i decided Really, there's no such thing as eternity. And he just thought that was so profound and so good. And I wanted to say, that's pretty dumb. I don't know where you're getting that at. But we sometimes come up with stuff that we're just convinced is good. Here's something that our good friend Warren Wiersbe once observed. I don't want to hold this to a thousand percent being true all the time, but I do think it's true almost all the time, 99.9, .9. he said this, I have learned that professed Christians who like to argue about the Bible are usually covering up some sin in their lives or are very insecure and are usually unhappy at work or at home. I wrote, wow, that's pretty amazing. I do think he's right. I do think he's right almost all the time. People 
who are wrong in their understanding of things need to argue. They just need to do that. Uh, they have to try to convince others that uh, their way of looking at things are right. Basically, people who are right in what they understand and see from God's word don't need to argue it because it's right. God's already said it and it's there. So those foolish kind of controversies. The next thing that um, he brings up is the genealogies. And, uh, and that's okay. Genealogies are good. Don't think about this the way that you normally think about doing genealogies. You look back at great, great, great grandma. And I was thinking about this because of Valentine's Day, but I'll bet you there's not too many people in this room who can say that they had a grandfather born on Valentine's Day whose name was Valentine. Um, I doubt very many do. I did, but anyhow, never knew him, but it, that's all I know about him. Genealogies are okay. There's nothing wrong with them, and they can be very valuable. Uh, in history and in culture, genealogies are used, they used to be used to determine who's gonna be the king of this kingdom, who's the priest in, in their line. Sometimes we, found out the land rights uh, based on genealogies and inheritances come through genealogies. So all of that's pretty good stuff, but that's not what Paul was thinking about here. Some of the people on the island of Crete were apparently using genealogies to establish lines of authority. And then therefore to say that, hey, I'm connected because of this or that, and then use that to present their interesting interpretations of things. And that kind of arguing, the genealogies and who's connected to who and who belonged to who, used to fascinate the Jews and the Greeks quite a bit. They would probably do things like, well, I can trace my family line through this one, who married this one, and this one back all the way to King David which therefore would maybe make me somehow kin to Jesus and, and then use that information to say, therefore, I have authority. And in some cases, maybe even came up with new and different ideas and said, see, I'm, I'm 23 times removed from King David, so therefore, this is valid stuff. The historian Eusebius tells us that in the fourth century, which is the 300s, that this long after the Apostle Paul and Titus and all the other apostles and disciples were gone, long after that, that there were people in Christendom that were doing that kind of thing. They were trying to claim that they were distantly related, maybe even just to Paul or to Titus or to somebody, and then use that claim as to build upon their own personal authority to be uh, believable when they have unique insights and wonderful revelations. And the Apostle Paul would just say, avoid that kind of stuff, stay away from that. The next couple things that he tells us about are quite simple. Uh, strife is just a general word that means all kinds of self-centered rivalry, contentiousness, especially people who are contentious toward the word of truth uh, they wanted to interpret scripture to suit their preferences. Remember one time, this was a long time ago, uh, there was a situation where a gentleman was married and he was 
fooling around with a young lady who was not married. And one time I was speaking and they were there and they knew my opinion on what was going on. I was trying to help them get this untangled. And, uh, and I was speaking and I don't know what I was speaking of. It was probably something like Balaam's donkey or something. I have no idea. But afterwards, this gentleman comes running up to me and he was so excited because he now knew what God wanted him to do. And I'm like, oh, finally, it's getting through to him. What is it? He said, I'm supposed to leave my wife and marry her. Like, really? What did I say that said that? Probably had something to do with the home donkey, I'm sure. Um, by the way, uh, they don't live anywhere around here. None of them, you, you wouldn't be able to guess who they were. But um, I do know, because I have them on Facebook, that he and his wife are still married and actually are doing really, really good. I don't know about the young lady. I have no idea how she's doing or where she's at or any of that stuff. None of them live anywhere around here. It's just sad stuff, how we will twist it. You know, whatever I want to be the answer is what I'll make this say to me. And that's what false teachers will do. They don't know how to uh, be introspective and allow God's word to purify your minds and your hearts. That's really kind of sad. And then in a similar sense, the, the area of disputes and disputes about the law, disputes particularly about the law of Moses, not if Moses, my typo, um, it's the law of Moses. They would take those practices and the ceremonies and say, see, I've kept all these things. I, I do all this. I, I observe the Sabbath. I, you know, I'm more spiritual than the rest of you. And they would argue their superiority based on what they do. And so therefore, you need to listen to them. So that's where I would go back again to the Council of Jerusalem that was recorded in Acts chapter 15. And it was called together to deal with the Judaizers. How much does a believer in Christ have to do? Do you and I have to observe the seven feasts of Israel? Do we have to observe the Sabbath day, which is Saturday? Do we have to do all those things? Will God accept us even if we don't do those things? That's the questions that came up. A lot of debate back and forth. It was probably spirited. Uh, at that time, and Paul threw in stuff, and Barnabas threw in some ideas, and James was the one who kind of brought it to an end. And so he wrote a document that was going to be circulated to the churches, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 15, but it starts in verse 9, and it says this, It is my judgment, so this is James, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And then he goes on and explains what that means in Jewish practices and stuff. You are thankful to your lucky stars or whatever else you want to say that he used the word not, make it more difficult. That we don't have to do all those things. And it's not because of somebody's opinion, but they studied the Word of God, they studied the person of God, and they studied the gift of Christ and salvation and how that happens and what it means. And they came to the conclusion that God does not want to make it burdensome for you and I to come to Him and have eternal life. He wants us to know Him as easily as possible. 
And it just it comes because it's all through the blood of Christ. It's nothing that you do. It's nothing that anybody can do for you. There's nothing you can give or do or purchase. It's all in Christ. But people there on the island was making trouble by adding all kinds of extra stuff, trying to make their, their way the way. And Paul just said, avoid it. Avoid these things because they are unprofitable and worthless. If people are not open to the truth, they're not willing to listen, they don't want to learn, then send them away. Don't deal with them. Verse 10 starts off by saying, warn a divisive person. And it, warn them and reject them. Give them a second chance, then not be troubled with them. Time's too short. Time is way too short, and the opportunities are too valuable for you to spend your time dealing with someone who is not open to the Spirit of God, not receptive to the things that God has. You need to go where it is uh, profitable and, and be valuable. So it's in verse 10, warn a device a person wants, then warn a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him. The uh, divisive person uh, is a heretic. The, uh, the Greek word is, they just took it from the Greek and brought it over. It's a heretic. And it means the one who makes a choice, a person who causes divisions. A heretic is someone who chooses his own path and his own way rejects maybe what God's Word says, maybe he ignores it, maybe he opposes it, but he doesn't use what God says, but he chooses to preach his own opinions and do it as truth. And then he causes divisions in the church by doing that. He's divisive, he's disruptive. And Paul's answer to that was, warn them, warn them again, but then reject them have absolutely nothing to do with them. But with that, I would put the footnote in there, and I know Paul would too, that church discipline should always be done with love and with the purpose of restoration in mind. Uh, most of the people who live around you and I, most of the people that live around us probably are living biblically bad lives. They're probably, you know, off somewhere in their lives, unless you're blessed to have a lot of believers, strong believers around you. Uh, the world will basically set low standards for themselves and then blame God for the standards he has. That's just the easy way to do it, and it's always God's fault. But we need to realize that and understand and, and learn to pass those things in people and love them toward Christ. That's what we need to do. Genuine godly love is the thing that binds the unity in the church. That's what keeps us all together. Then he goes on in verse 11 to give a final identification um, on it. I like Warren Wiersbe had his own translation for this verse, and I really like the way he said it. Such a person is warped in character, keeps on sinning, and has condemned himself. 
That's true. That's really well said. Uh, I love the verse, Ann and I always used to jokingly share the verse with each other and some of our friends when we were younger. And it says, be sure your sins will find you out. It's really true. You know, when, when you're doing something wrong, it's going to happen and it's going to find itself out. We live in a day, especially with the media thing, uh, it always amazes me. I do hang around young people some, and it always amazes me how people get tripped up with things that have something to do with media. And it's like, hello, there's only 7 billion people who read what you just said, <laughs> you know? And you just admitted to something and you thought nobody would find out. Uh, it's kind of silly. Here it tells and describes a person as being warped. Uh, some translations use the word perverted. Uh, it literally means somebody who turns something inside out or who twists something. Uh, he's twisted in his sinful selfishness. His words and his actions will condemn him. And you're saying this happens in a church? Uh, well, Paul <coughs> saw it going on in Crete, and that's why he sent Titus there, was to help straighten them out and to take care of things. Remember chapter 1, and to set up leadership and elders and train people to, to do what is right there. Uh, but it happens in churches. Uh, you know, people who want their way and they twist things to, to make it look favorable to them. And again, Paul would just say, stay away from them. Avoid them. They're divisive people. Now here's good news. Good news for you for today. And that is, Paul's going to end this letter with verses 12 and 13 by talking about some personal needs and things, but it reminds them of doing what is good. So it starts off in verse 1. The last phrase in verse 1 says, to be ready to do whatever is good. And then when we come to uh, verse 14, it says in the middle, devote themselves to doing what is good. So as bad as this stuff is that we talked about today, next Sunday we're going to talk about doing what is good and what is right. The main thing that you and I need to do to avoid that type of being that type of a problem person is to stay in the Word of God. Stay close to the Word of God, trust the Word of God, because it is the words of life, it's the words of hope, it's the things that will keep us on a straight and narrow path of what God wants us to be. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your guidance. We thank you for warning us when we need to be warned. We pray, Lord, that our hearts and our spirits would be open to you. Be open to you and to your word at all times. May we not get sidetracked with uh, silly issues, moronic issues, that will maybe work out to our preference, but not necessarily to your heart and your mind. Help us, Lord, as a church to be loving and kind and gentle with those who, maybe out of ignorance or just out of immaturity, that maybe at moments will go astray, but um, they just need to be loved back to your will. Thank you so much for this teaching that we've been able to look at and through the three chapters of 
the book of Titus is so practical in how we live every day. Help us to live to the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.